One Friday morning in 2005, I attended prayer services at Tehran University. I was traveling with a crew from Britain's Channel 4, and we were treated as VIPs. Security checks were waived, and we were given the press booth right next to Ayatollah Kashani, who addressed the faithful for the next two hours. The vast hall was only half full, but Kashani's sermon was long and furious, something straight out of 1979. Out on the street, a demonstration was forming. There were effigies of President Bush, blood running from his pointed teeth. Across the street, some demonstrators unfurled banners, Marg Bar America, Death to America. I walked for a time among the demonstrators. There was one old man who seemed especially passionate about bringing death to America, shaking his fist and shouting. I walked up to him. Do you mean all Americans? I asked. He looked at me curiously. Where are you from? he said. I told him I was American. He winked and leaned in closer to me. How can I get an American visa? he asked. Iran is a country of nuances. Unfortunately, at just the time it most needs to, the United States doesn't see those nuances or understand Iran for what it is, a country that's deeply pious yet desperately trying to modernize. Iran's religious parties generally receive only about 10% of the vote, considerably less than in Turkey, a member of NATO and an American ally. Americans see Iran's president and mullahs as relics from a dark age, when in reality they're a driving force behind Iran's modernization. Since the U.S.-led invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq, it's true, there's been a conservative retrenchment, with hardliners winning the presidency and a majority in parliament. A U-turn like this was all but inevitable with hostile armies on two of Iran's borders. But once the wars are over, Iran will no doubt return to modernizing. Iranians watch our movies, read our books, listen to our music. They have taken to the Internet and modern technology with an obsession equal to our own. Today, Persian is the most common language on the Internet after English and Mandarin Chinese. Iran's president, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, writes his own blog. In some ways, Iran has matched our own modern standards. The country's population growth has plummeted from a high of 3.2 in 1986 to 1.2 in 2001 only slightly higher than America's. The Iranians also keep an old Shia practice with regard to pleasure and sex, one that Sunni Muslims consider morally forbidden, zawaj al-mita, pleasure marriage or sanctioned prostitution. The way it works is, a mullah will grant a license for a man and a woman to marry for a set period, two hours, a week, a month. The mullah's only concern is making sure the man pays for the child if the woman becomes pregnant. It's paradoxes like these that make Iran so difficult to grasp. The signs of change are everywhere. One of the most popular dramas on Iranian state television is about an Iranian diplomat who saves French Jews from the Nazis during World War II. The average age of marriage for an Iranian woman today is 25. During the Shah's last year in power, it was 13. And doctors reportedly perform more sex change operations in Iran than in any other country except Thailand, 
with the Iranian government even paying up to half the cost for some transsexuals. If you stroll around North Tehran, the part that runs up into the hills, that's where you're really struck by the contrasts. There are food courts serving Thai and Chinese food, with plastic trays and soft drinks. Young unmarried girls and boys share hookahs at outdoor restaurants, the girls' head covers pushed back down around the neck. In Iran, unlike in Saudi Arabia, religious police aren't on every corner to enforce the moral order. And unlike in Sudan, there are no arrests in Iran for the grave offense of naming a teddy bear Mohammed. While I was in Tehran, I was regularly invited to parties. I'd heard rumors they were as hip and wild as anything that goes on in the cosmopolitan western capitals of the world. But I figured I'd already pressed my luck even coming to Iran, and anyhow I couldn't stay up that late to find out. What did all this tell me about Iran's imperial grasp? The parties, the love affair with the Internet, the changing sexual mores, they augur a country modernizing, looking beyond its borders. One piece of Iran that's trying to modernize but can't is the economy. For the life of me, I couldn't find a single good restaurant in Tehran. The restaurants reminded me of those in the Soviet Union, buffets with lousy service. There were more waiters than needed, but all of them stood around, surly, turning away when you wanted something. Kitchens ran out of everything, and breakfasts were peculiar, with mountains of watermelon and boiled eggs and nothing else. Omelets were apparently an outrageous luxury, though with relentless charm and cajoling, you might get one. Another thing that reminded me of the Soviet Union were the soulless, water-streaked cement apartment buildings, office buildings, and hotels. Concierges are invariably polite, but hopeless in trying to help you with anything. Phones mostly don't work, and Internet connections are erratic. To be sure, there are well-heeled Iranian elite reading Lolita and dining on Nouvelle Cuisine, but they keep out of sight. Tehran's big problem is the internal combustion engine. The Iranian national car, the Pekan, is one of the noisiest, worst polluting, and least fuel-efficient cars in the world. It was in production for 40 years, and many of the cars on Iran's roads predate the 1979 revolution. With gasoline running as low as 7 cents a gallon until recently, though, there wasn't much incentive for change. Even so, in the last three years, 250,000 Iranian cars have been converted to natural gas or hybrids. And today, Tehran's smog has cleared up enough to see the snow-covered Elbers Mountains to the north. <laughs>